Well, I'm very pleased to be able to welcome uh, Jonathan Isabel to the downtown den uh, to have a conversation with us about Brexit, about politics at the moment and one or two other things uh, in between. Uh, just a quick resume of your career from what I know of it, Jonathan. Uh, Brexit's central till very recently and we'll talk about that. Uh, uh, Taxpayers Allowance, uh, Alliance before that. Uh, you've been a columnist for uh, GQ magazine. Uh, you've run a campaign to save uh, general election night, which I want to talk about because I, I find that uh, fascinating. But you're also a co-editor. You were an editor of uh, Conservative Forum, which I think would have been very successful. So we've got plenty to talk about. Let's start with uh, Brexit and where we're at at the moment. And what, t tell us what Brexit Central was about as well, Jonathan. Well, thank you, Simon. Great, great to be here today. Um, Brexit Central was founded in the aftermath of the referendum. Uh, it was actually the idea of Matthew Elliott, who'd been the chief executive of the Vote Leave campaign, the successful Vote Leave campaign. And he thought it would be useful for there to be a portal to keep uh, the public uh, and indeed overseas observer, observers and anyone else uh, up to date and up to speed on what was happening with Brexit during the, the course of the UK's withdrawal from the EU following the referendum in order to, yes, keep them informed, but also, if necessary, to hold the government's feet to the fire. So we started back in September 2016 and we went out with a bang on the 31st of January, uh, which was obviously the day that the United Kingdom left the European Union. Uh, and throughout those kind of three and a half years, we provided a, a running commentary day by day on what was going on. We hosted articles by, I think, more than, more than 500 different people wrote for us over that time, uh, giving all kind of different aspects uh, to, do, to do with Brexit, analysis, opinion, um, proposals, counter-proposals. Uh, and we did a daily news summary of what, what happened, you know, collating from all different sources into an email that went out every morning. And it is, of course, all there for posterity on BrexitCentral.com. If, uh, if any students are wanting to, in years to come, follow what happened day by day, uh, it's there for all to see. Yeah. And let's start by putting those uh, cards on the table. I was a Remainer, campaigned uh, to remain in the EU, just about. I was always, uh, always thought there needed to be radical reform of the EU and its institutions, radical reform, but nevertheless campaigned to remain. Uh, once the result came out, which I was surprised at, uh, I then said we must go for Brexit. The people have decided, and then my view was that we should exit the uh, European Union. Tell us about yourself, Jonathan, how you got there and what your view was. I presume you were always a Brexiteer. I've always been very skeptical about the European Union. I mean, you, you only need to go back, to, you know, even when I was, I was at school at the time of the Maastricht Treaty going through. And even then, I was deeply uncomfortable about this massive uh, handing over of power to Brussels without any recourse to the British public in a referendum. And it seemed that you know, all the main political parties um, were, were cosily in favour of this transfer of powers. And it was a pretty small minority of, of politicians, uh, you know, some in the Labour Party, some in the Conservative Party, who were against it. And, you know, with every new treaty that came along, uh, in the 25 years after Maastricht, I, you know, more and more power was given away. There was this sense that, you know, this political project 
uh, was something that, frankly, the British people weren't invested in, had never really signed up to. You know, when we joined the EEC back in the early 70s, it was sold as an economic project to do with trade, which I think most people were, were happy with. But the, the political nature of that project became clearer and clearer over the years. Uh, and I certainly felt that, you know, enough was enough. And you say the EU needs radical reform from within. Uh, you know, clear, clearly it does. Clearly I wanted that. But I'd come to the conclusion by the time of the referendum that that frankly was impossible. It wasn't mm -hmm. going to happen. The EU was unreformable. And certainly looking at the leadership of the European Union, you know, there were, there were not enough people at, at the top of that uh, organisation that realised that that kind of reform was necessary. So it was better to simply say, we want different things, let's have a clean break. And that's what we did. And worst case scenario, where do you think, had we remained in the EU, uh, where do you think, what's the worst case scenario? What, what were you most fearful of as ending up with in terms of the EU? Well, I say I, I had just objected on constitutional and sovereignty grounds, grounds to the, the amount of, of vetoes that we'd given away and the amount of regulations that were being foisted upon the country that we didn't necessarily need to have to abide by. No, but there's also the money element to it, the fact that uh, you know, the, the EU was taking net 12 billion plus a year from the UK and spraying it around other parts of the European Union. And, you know, thank God we, we never did join the Euro. And dare I say it, I, I think probably Gordon, that, that may be the thing that Gordon Brown goes down in history for as, as his most important achievement when he was yeah. chancellor stopping Blair from getting us into the Euro. But we may not be in the Euro, but our exposure uh, to potential problems, you know, having to finance you know, debts for, for Greece and other countries which uh, are, are in far less an economic good situation than us, uh, I, I just felt we needed to extricate ourselves from it. But I just wondered whether you thought it might get even worse in the EU, if you'd anticipated it getting worse, a EU military force, etc. Did you see the scenario becoming even darker? Well, of course, you know, we, we were told that you know, talking about an EU army a few years ago was a dangerous fantasy by people like Nick Clegg. But not long after the UK decision to leave the European Union, suddenly the, the European Union talked perfectly openly about you know military integration uh you know that that just goes to show that you know, the the eu and the brussels machine is obsessed with integration and centralization in every single area of life um you know i i didn't want to be part of that i think the british people made clear they didn't want to be part of that so it's for the best that we go our separate ways and, and wish them well. I certainly don't wish ill on the European Union. You know, they remain our closest geographical neighbours and you know, I hope that they are successful. But what they want to do, I say, is, is a very different kind uh, of scheme than, than I would be wanting to sign up to. And, and the, uh, the public decision was to come out and... and it's interesting, isn't it? Why couldn't Theresa May get his aid, but Boris could? Well, I mean, it all comes down to parliamentary arithmetic, doesn't it? And, you know, I spent much of the last three and a half years sitting in the press gallery in the House of Commons, 
as debates went on and votes took place and you saw the the way the numbers stacked up that i mean you you said yourself that you remainer but you accepted the result to leave in the aftermath of the referendum and i think frankly most people in the country who backed remain similarly took that view the the idea that there has always been since referendum day this 48% who wanted to remain is absolutely for the birds i think the vast majority of remain voters accepted the result and wanted brexit to happen it's unfortunate however that there was a minority but i'm afraid a very vocal minority within the political class in westminster who simply didn't accept that referendum result and they may have given lip paid lip service to it initially initially no and it's interesting you know you think at, look at the 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 roll call of mps who voted to trigger Article 50 included people even like Anna Subri, who, you know, a few years down the line became such an inveterate opponent of leaving the European Union that she, she left her party, went to a new party, as, as did various others. Uh, and say, I spent a lot, of, a lot of last year looking down on the House of Commons chamber as these debates took place. Uh, I remember those debates uh, where you know, backbenchers had forced the government to have to have these these votes on a whole load of different options, and literally they voted down every single possibility. Uh, it, it became parliamentary gridlock, um, and under Theresa May's premiership, this the numbers simply weren't there to get it happen, uh, to, to make it happen, and. You know, in retrospect, the day after the 2017 general election, when she lost her majority, probably was the moment where it was clear there was actually going to have to be another vote in the form of another general election in order to finally seal the deal. And obviously, that's what happened in December last year. And um, Boris, uh, team Boris called it right, didn't they? They could, they sensed the feeling in the country. People had had enough with the shenanigans in Westminster and in Parliament, the to and froing over Brexit. People were effectively saying, the majority were effectively saying, goodness me, get us out, we've had enough. Yeah, well, the slogan was get Brexit done. And, you know, it resonated uh, across the country. And of course, you know, in many parts of the country, which voted leave, which had traditionally voted for Labour MPs for decades, uh, which all of a sudden found that the only way to get Brexit done was to vote Conservative. And, you know, it created this fascinating new electoral geography. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to bring us up to date then in terms of Brexit, just, just tell us where, where we're up to. Many of the viewers uh, in, in membership and in the wider network that will view this won't be familiar. They'll have been distracted by the pandemic, to say the least. Where are we up to and what are the next steps, Jonathan? Well, obviously, we formally left the European Union at the end of January. And that's the point at which the transition period began during which we would no longer have representation in the European Parliament but for, for the remainder of this calendar year we would abide by European rules and regulations and during this period would be seeking to negotiate a free trade agreement with the European Union for 2021 onwards. Now obviously those negotiations were somewhat delayed due to the COVID pandemic and you know, initially happened virtually. Uh, they've now gone back to having face-to-face -face 
meetings. They were in Brussels last week. Uh, Michel Barnier uh, was in London this week and I think had dinner with David Frost, who's the, the Prime Minister's key man on this a uh, couple of nights ago. I think they're in Brussels again next week in London the week after. We're now in a pretty intensive phase of talks about trying to get a free trade agreement for after uh, the end of the transition period. Uh, there are obviously disputes over what that should be like and the basis for it. Uh, the European Union has been making some quite, I would say, outrageous demands of the UK. Uh, you know, there, there's been talk of trying to act as if the UK was still in the common fisheries policy, uh, whereas the UK is absolutely uh, steadfast in saying, that the government is steadfast in saying that we will be an independent coastal state, we'll negotiate uh, fishing rights annually in the same way that any other independent coastal state would do, indeed the way I think that the European Union does with Norway. Uh, likewise, the European Union wants to try and impose uh, they, they talk about this so-called level playing field on regulation where their, their ideal scenario is that the UK accepts all European regulation, including ones that haven't been even created yet, but that through so-called dynamic alignment, we would agree to accept them in the future, uh, which again is totally unacceptable. The, the government's been clear, we need to be able to act as an independent nation after Brexit. Yeah, and of course, if you're going to sell goods into the European Union market, of course, you need to make sure that those goods fulfill the regulations that are to be sold in the European market. But we shouldn't have to abide by those for, for the domestic market and for other markets elsewhere in the world. No, in the same way that, you know, the European Union has a, has a deal, a, tra a trade deal with Canada. You know, that doesn't involve Canada accepting all European Union regulations. So, the deal that I hope that we'll do with the European Union ourselves shouldn't uh, include any such measures either. And what should business be doing in terms of preparation? I know that's a very general point, it'll be different for different sectors, but are there any key points that business should be aware of? Well, business needs to remember that, you know, at the end of 2021, we will have left the European Union single market and the European Union customs union. You know, those, those things happen regardless of whether there's a trade deal or not. Uh, and, and obviously that does mean that there are uh, new procedures to be aware of in terms of export declarations and import declarations. So I think the government has already said that in terms of import declarations, there's gonna be a kind of six month phasing in period at the beginning of ne next year, because obviously this whole process has been slightly uh, set back by, by, by the COVID pandemic. Uh, I understand from my sources in Westminster that uh, the government are going to be launching pretty soon, it's certainly in, in the second half of the year, uh, a new website aimed specifically at business to ensure that they are ready to kind of give all the pointers that they're going to need uh, for preparedness as of the 31st of December, which is uh, when that transition period ends. Good. Now, let, let's move on a little bit. It's fair to say that you're uh, right of centre in terms of your politics and, and to, you, your career has sort of proven that point. Uh, tell us a little bit about Conservative Home. I don't know a lot, but it's, it's been a, a website that's had a lot of attention over the years. It's had some impact, hasn't it? Yeah, well, I, I was co-editor of Conservative Home between 2008 and 2011. 
so covering the, the period of kind of David Cameron's final two years in opposition and the lead up to the general election and then following the first year of the, the coalition government. Uh, Conservative Home was actually uh, created back in 2005 by Tim Montgomery. That he, he was the founder of the website. He's the one for whom the, the kudos should go for, for founding it. Uh, and it was very much seen as a, a place for the Conservative grassroots voice to be heard. Um, you know, the, the, the internet and blogging and uh, created you know, extraordinary opportunities for almost the kind of democratization of the media in the sense that it was far easier for an individual to set up a portal through which to, to communicate with the world. And, you know, you obviously blog sites and websites emerged on, on all sides of the political spectrum back in the 2000s to, to, to make that happen. Uh, but I suppose Conservative Home was probably the, the, the premier, in the premier league of, of, of those sites. Um, and say from, from the beginning, uh, it, was a, it was a way of um, communicating uh, both to the grassroots and, and from the grassroots to the, to the party leadership. I mean, the, all political parties, certainly the two main parties, I think, over the last couple of decades have become increasingly centralised and sometimes it seems harder for, for members on the ground to, to have their voices heard and to feel involved. Uh, and so Conservative Home uh, did that. Uh, it's, you know, ever since its founding, it's done a, a monthly survey to rate the various, you know, shadow cabinet or cabinet members and to talk about what, what readers were seeking in terms of policy proposals and, and ideas. Yep. Just on that, Jonathan, what, what are the latest survey findings in terms of Boris and his Chancellor Rishi Sunak? Any key findings there? Well, I, I, I think I'm right in saying that Rishi Sunak is riding very, very high uh, in, in the polling at the moment uh, amongst the Conservative Party membership. And, you know, he's yeah, he certainly, you know, the, in, in journalese, would be deemed to have had a good crisis, if you like. Um, he, you know, I mean, he's, he's younger than I am. Uh, you know, this is where I began to feel that I'm past it when the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is, is, is younger than me. Um, but, you know, he's, he's obviously only been at the top of the political tree for, for six months now, um, you know, and... and prior to him becoming chancellor. I think very few people had heard of him, uh, but he was obviously uh, someone in whom Boris had a great deal of confidence. And, you know, thus far, certainly, certainly in the way that he's gone about doing the job uh, of chancellor, uh, has, has done it with aplomb. Uh, you know, one, I mean, it's, it's hard to judge right now, but I think you know people will look back in time uh, over the decisions that he's been part of in terms of the you know the the schemes that he's overseen and, and set up. You know, some of which came earlier in the crisis, some of which have come in in the summer statement this week. Um, you know, as to whether or not those in retrospect were the right thing to do or not. So, I mean, in a sense, the, the jury will is out. Uh, on you know, his kind of you know, medium to long-term uh, success. And, and what, what do you make of his summer statement? Did you catch uh, the headlines from that or did you watch, watch it? Yeah, I mean, 
we are, it's a cliche to say it, but we are in completely unprecedented times. And the, the amount of intervention from the government in the economy, you know, is the like of which I never thought I would see again. I mean, the, 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 the amount of you know, debt that the government is ratcheting up you know, puts the, the government debt from the 2007-8 crisis, uh, you know, into perspective. Is, I mean, it's a, it's a far bigger amount than, than back then. You know, the shock to the economy has been appalling. And, you know, government has obviously felt it was right to make these unprecedented interventions in order to, you know, to, to, to keep things moving. But it remains to be seen whether you know, these these measures are short-term sticking plaster, which just uh, creates a further problem just slightly further down the line, or whether they will have been measures which help return the economy to economic health rather you know, rather swiftly, which is obviously what we would all like. Um, I mean, I. The, the government, you know, someone said yesterday, you know, the, the government needs to create jobs. Well, the government doesn't create jobs. It, it's business and entrepreneurs that create jobs. And I think that the most important thing that the government should be doing is creating the environment uh, in order to make uh, job creation as easy as possible and as successful as possible. And, you know, I, I, I do slightly wonder whether we should have heard more about that yesterday. And it's all, it's all very well having you know, the, the kickstart scheme to, to get you know, unemployed people into, into to work, in work training effectively. Um, but, you know, I think the, the, the best thing the government could be doing would be to be looking at how to create those long-term sustainable jobs by understanding what business needs and what business wants, uh, in in terms of you know, what you know should 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 they be you know, looking at you know cuts to the jobs tax or, or employers national insurance as 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 we call it or you know, other you know, rules and regulations around employment um, in order to to make make that easier. Well, and that sort of suggests, well, two points that spring to mind now. First of all, that the summer statement yesterday was very much a sticking plaster, very temporary, short-term measures. So it wasn't, as I think you were suggesting, looking to the medium to long-term. And then what you're also actually saying, and perhaps it reflects from your time at the Taxpayers Alliance, is, and I, I wouldn't argue with it necessarily, is that we actually need less intervention rather than more intervention from government yeah look i mean i, I accept that in you know in the short term in this unprecedented crisis the government had to act to stop immediate mass unemployment but you know that is not a long-term solution uh and yeah i mean again one of my most hated phrases is is when people talk about so-called government money no, there is no such thing as government money. All money the government spends has to come from somewhere, and that somewhere is is us, the taxpayer. So, you know, whatever spending the government uh, does, which is having to finance by borrowing, 
is going to be have to be paid by us taxpayers in the end and you know we we certainly must never forget that Mm. And, and just on a lighter note, what do you make of the uh, meal deal uh, solution that the Chancellor came up with yesterday? Um, I mean, I, I'm, I don't know whether it will work or not. It, it seems, you know, extremely gimmicky, um, you know, and already I'm hearing of people thinking of ways to, to, to play it, you know, to, rather than going out for... Uh, a, a meal where they get their £10 discount off, off a slap-up meal. They could go to three separate restaurants for the start of the main course and dessert and get £10 off of each of them. And I, I, I don't know, is there going to be a limit on how many times you can use this during the course of those, those days when, when that's allowed? Um, you know, I, th I think, you know, and, and as much as anything, you know, the government... I don't think the government necessarily needs to encourage people to want to go out to eat out. I think most of us are desperate to, to, to treat ourselves and our families and our friends to, to that because we've been missing it for so long. I think, you know, as much as anything, the government needs to give reassurance that, and, and, and business needs to understand that the, uh, the, the right safety measures are in place to ensure that going out for those, for those treats those meals out uh is going to be safe in in the in the circumstances i agree with you i think it's a an ex initially it sounded quite good fun but i think on reflection i think it's exceptionally complex and in terms of people playing it i think as you suggest individuals but also there'll be some businesses and restaurants that play it quite effectively actually in terms of accruing some cash if i can say that uh, but interesting times, interesting uh, temporary solutions. Uh, just before we move on, you, you centre-right politics, you're broadly happy with the, the direction in which the Prime Minister and the country is going? I mean, look, I was, I was broadly happy with the, the manifesto that the Prime Minister put forward at the election last year. But, I mean, that, that was only six months ago, but it just seems a complete world away now. And I think, uh, you know, the... The, the way that you know that this this parliament is going to be completely defined by covid and 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 what happens to the economy following it you know i mean the, it's it's bizarre that the brexit's almost been forgotten about and you know the you know i remember you know during during the course of the last year or two that the, the amount of times that you know friends of mine were absolutely fed up to the teeth of me talking about brexit because it was the only thing on the news and it was it was just you know, so intense. Well, in a sense, now they're saying, "Come back, Brexit. All is forgiven because we set up of COVID and uh, everything that's come out of that." Um, and yeah, I think, in a sense, you know, the, the government will obviously want to uh, put into practice as much of its manifesto from the from the last election as possible. And I think that the leveling up agenda and ensuring that uh, there's a there's a good deal for people in all parts of the United Kingdom uh, is something they're going to want to continue to pursue. Um, but, you know, so much of what was on the agenda has had to be just put completely to the back burner while they, they concentrate on, on the health crisis. And I've known you several years, uh, Jonathan, uh, somebody who's had a real impact, very much in the background. You've not been at the 
you know, you've not been in elected office, uh, as far as I'm aware, anyway. But uh, what, what next for you? What's the next steps in your career? Uh, watch this space is what I'd say. I'm uh, obviously Brexit Central came to a conclusion at the end of January, and I kind of took February to recharge, and then obviously COVID happened. So uh, you know, March onwards was not the ideal time to be uh, on uh, in looking for a, for a new job. However, I'm I'm in very advanced talks about a new role which I can't say anything about because it isn't yet signed and sealed uh, but um, watch this space. Sounds very interesting you'll come back and speak to us once you settled into whichever new role you fulfill but let, let's uh, let's finish by talking about save general election now which fascinates me T tell us a little bit about the campaign and the impact that it had. So this goes back to 2009 in the autumn of 2009 uh, I became aware that returning officers who run the count for the general elections uh, were trying to gang up on the government and, and the politicians effectively to try and move counting of the votes to the Friday morning rather than on the Thursday night. Now, over the last three or four decades, more and more counts have been happening on the Thursday night, you know, there were there were one or two places where they still were happening on a Friday. Places like the you know, the constituency that involves uh, the City Isles, uh, St Ives down in Cornwall, and one or two others that had counted on on Friday because they were such sparse rural areas. But most constituencies counted on a Thursday night, and that I thought was a good thing. Uh, and most of my friends in politics from all sides of the political spectrum thought that counting the votes on the night was the right thing to do. You know, after all, you know, if people take the trouble to vote, you know, you should take the trouble to get on with giving them results. And, you know, there are implications about potentially security of the ballot if, you know, millions of ballot papers are having to be stored overnight somewhere. Uh, and also that, you know, an election night is someone described as the nearest we have to a carnival of democracy in this country where, you know, people will stay up late for that, that one time every four or five years and, you know, watch the results coming in. So Save General Election Night was a campaign that I set up and I talked to friends, say, in different political parties uh, to get a, a head of steam behind we should count the votes on the Thursday night put pressure on individual returning officers initially to declare what their intentions were and for those that were wanting to move the count to Friday to, to encourage them to, to not do that. Um, but then as it turned out in early 2010 uh, we actually, I mean there, there was an early day motion in Parliament which you will know as a former MP, most early day motions are kind of parliamentary graffiti which are completely meaningless but the early day motion saying we should count on a Friday night was, I think, the in the top 10 most signed motions of, of that year. And more than 200 MPs had signed it. It was, it was a serious declaration. We should count on a Thursday night. Sorry, Jonathan. It said, right. it's, it said we should count on a Thursday night, exactly. not a Friday. Yeah. Exactly, yes. Um, but the, so that early day motion was extremely well subscribed. And then in early 2010, uh, there was an amendment moved to a piece of legislation regarding the constitution i can't remember exactly which bill it was now but there was there was an amendment moved to, to enshrine in law 
that they should have to count on the Thursday night uh, unless there was a very, very good reason. And if there, if there was a good reason, they'd have to set out in advance their reasoning and their justification for doing so. I've just lost you for a minute there, Jonathan. I'm, I'm here. I'm still here. Yes, we, I, I lost you for a second. That might be a problem at my end. But it, got, it, got, it came into law, effectively. Yeah, no, exactly. The, the campaign was successful. And it was, hey, it, it was literally a, a campaign that I started through a Facebook group, uh, got some other political bloggers to write about. We got the EDM in Parliament. Uh, you know, it was a, a campaign. We, we, I mean, we, we didn't have any budget at all. We, it was just ideas and contacts and... Um, you know, pushing the right buttons in the right places, and and it was very successful. So well, let me let me say thank you. As a political nerd, I mean, election night. You know, I, I I'm a terrible candidate. I, I don't enjoy it when I'm a candidate, but nevertheless, I, it, you know, we couldn't live without it, could we? The idea of it being on a Friday just isn't the same. And and I'm so pleased that uh, that you had the success uh, that you did have. So let's finish on that note, Jonathan. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Uh, good luck with your career. I'm sure it'll be continue to be successful and impactful. And I'm sure you'll join us again. Cheers. Thank you.